In many ways, asking why someone murders is like asking why is a piece of wood on fire? Why does a piece of wood burn? Well, a piece of wood burns because someone or something set fire to it. We look at the evils of the French Revolution, and of course you understand this is a lens for looking at larger and wider historical evils. We look at the French Revolution, at the mass slaughter, imprisonment, torture, rape, mutilation. What's going on? Well, we're going to go further back and wider, and we're going to talk about particular practices in ancient civilizations. This is going to be a strange but very accurate laser-like portal through which we get through looking at the mind of Robespierre and others at the top of the Reign of Terror. We're going to talk about three civilizations. I use that term fairly loosely. The Romans, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, and the Samurais. Now, the Samurai civilization lasted into the 19th century, so it didn't end centuries and centuries ago, millennia ago. Now, if you look at the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, and the Samurai, the warriors in particular, every one of them, Every one of these cultures embraced pedophilia or hepophilia. The older warriors would rape, often, uh, children, young male warriors. It sort of was like the, the pornography of the day was boys, insofar as you could get sexual release without the risk of pregnancy, offspring, splitting up your land, and, and so on, without the risk of bastards and blackmail and all of that. So... If you look at the samurai culture, well, they had an approach called shudo. It was carried out from medieval times all the way until the 19th century, when it finally began to be thought of as taboo, and an older warrior would pick out a younger warrior. Until the boy came of age, the bond was sexual. He would rape. Children can't give consent, so this is all rape. The warriors believed that sexual relations with women weakened the mind, the body, and the spirit. And so they turned to boys instead. And they viewed the union between an older warrior and a boy as, as the, I don't know, they make up all this nonsense, as the uniting of our battle spirits. Of course, these battle spirits only lasted a certain amount of time. So when the boys began to grow facial hair and hit the muscularity of puberty, then the relationship was considered inappropriate. It's fine when they're little boys, but when they get to puberty, suddenly it's inappropriate. And after that, you'd still be a slave or a servant to the older partner in battle, and then you would choose a younger male, a boy of your own, and it would, it would continue. So ancient Rome, ancient Greek, child rape was endemic and central to the culture. Now, Judaism and Christianity condemned this as a whole in general. You remember Aesop's fables, these stories. The fables, such as those written by Aesop, began to depict this kind of sodomy between older and younger men as taboo and unacceptable. And by the fall of the Roman Empire, this called pederasty had fallen largely out of fashion. Now, the Samurais and the Greeks viewed pederasty as an educational, a battle, a spiritual union. But the, for the Romans, it was just a social pastime. In ancient Rome, it was totally normal, socially normal, absolutely accepted, could practice it in public, for older men to prefer young boys over young women. And unlike the, the Greeks and the samurai warriors, 
Roman pederastry was just about hedonism, indulgence, and sexual desires. It was seen as an act of power. Many Roman emperors took young boys to rape as, as pederasty victims because they said, look, if you can manage your sex life, you can organize multiple sexual partners. Well, clearly you can run a city or a province. So in ancient Greece, pederasty was, I mean, you know, they would call it a romantic relationship, but it's just an exploitive pedophilic relationship between an older male called the Erastis and a younger male, the Eromenos, who was usually in his teens. And the archaic and classical periods, it was very common. And the influence of pederasty on Greek culture was so prevalent, it has actually been called, and I quote, the principal cultural model for free relationships between citizens. And it's pretty clear that in the Greek-English lexicon, the words used to is the love of boys, to be a lover of boys, pederastia, the lover of boys, and pederastuin, lover of boys. And so it could be that the older male could be in his 20s, early 20s even, so the age difference might not be huge, but again, it could be pretty pretty wide as a whole. And what age are we talking about? Well, in the poetry of Sappho and so on, there's some references, art and other literary references show that you were at least a teenager, aged estimates from 13 to 20, rare cases up to the age of 30. And to be an eligible eromenos, a youth, would be kind of at the age where an aristocrat would begin his formal military training. So from the ages of 15 or so on to, uh, to 17. In Crete, there was a particular flavor, sinister as all of this stuff is stone evil. Cretan pederasty had an initiation rite which included abduction. So an old man would select uh, a child and then enlist the child's friends to help him and then carry off the child to his Andreon, it's kind of like a meeting hall or a, or a men's club. And then he would shower the child, the teenager, the young boy, well, the boy, with gifts. And then the older man with some others would take the boy away for two months into the countryside where they would uh, hunt and, and feast. And I assume there would be horrible, ghastly seduction rituals and so on. And at the end of the time, the boy would be presented with three gifts. And this you had to do, right? So you, you would give him military attire, uh, armor and so on, sword. You'd give him an ox and you'd give him a drinking cup. And then you'd give other stuff later. And then when you came back to the city, the boy would be forced or would have to sacrifice the ox to Zeus and all his friends would join him at that feast. And then you would also get this uh, very special clothing that marked him as was a klinos, uh, famous or, or renowned. And the initiate here, the boy, was called a parastathesis, uh, he who stands beside, maybe because Ganymede was the cupbearer of Zeus, and he stood by the side of his adult rapist during meals in this men's club or, or, or meeting hall and served him from the cup that had been given to him after he was raped. So that's uh, obviously horrible. Now, this is not just a windowless van. I mean, a lot of history seems to be basically all about various ways of having a windowless van pull up. 
But in Crete, for the abduction to occur, the father had to approve the boy as worthy of the honor. And a lot of times, of course, in Greece and in ancient Rome, and I assume, of course, in the samurai culture in Japan, the parents would really, really hope that they had a very handsome and attractive son, because that would give them some great social status. In parts of Greece, this pederasty was an acceptable form of what they would call eroticism. And there were other things, of course, it was fine to sexually use, which would mean abuse your slaves. The word for prostitute in ancient Greece was pornos, P-O-R-N-O-S, or heteros, the male equivalent of hetera. So in ancient Greece, let's look at among the Athenians, this is what Socrates claims in Xenophon's Symposium, and I quote, Nothing of what concerns the boy is kept hidden for the father by an ideal lover. And uh, according to Ascanus, Athenian fathers would pray, as I mentioned, that their sons would be beautiful, handsome, attractive, that then they would attract the attention of the older, powerful men, and I quote, be the objects of fights because of erotic passion. So fighting over who gets to rape the boy. Again, often post-puberty, generally post-puberty, but certainly pre-adulthood. And, you know, a 13-year-old boy is still a dozen years away from, or more, brain maturity. So, yeah, no moral capacity for for consent. So Plato, in his in Symposium, Symposium, the famous book about philosophers talking about love, Pausanias has a speech where he says that pederasty is really great for democracy and it's feared by tyrants because the bond between the older man and his young victim was really, really strong and it was stronger than the bond to despotic or totalitarian rulers. Athenius states that, and I quote, Hieronymus the Aristotelian says that love with boys was fashionable because several tyrannies had been overturned by young men in their prime, joined together as comrades in mutual sympathy. He gives examples of these pederastic couples or groomer or victim. The Athenians Harmodius and Aristogaton, who were credited I mean, it's not real, probably symbolic, but the overthrow of the tyrant Hippias and the establishment of democracy and uh, Chariton and Melanippus and so on. And Aristotle claimed that the Cretan lawgivers encouraged pederasty as a means of controlling the population, right? They didn't want too many people and this way they could channel love and sexual desire into areas where you're not going to get kids, right? Obviously so. As a form of uh, population control. And uh, he said, Aristotle said, and the lawgiver has devised many wise measures to secure the benefit of moderation at table and the segregation of the women in order that they may not bear many children, for which purpose he instituted association with the male sex. And people, of course, dove into myth to justify this. The myth of Ganymede's abduction by Zeus was said, he said, oh, this is the precedent for the pederastic parasitical exploitation. Theognis asserts to a friend, and I quote, there is some pleasure in loving a boy, or this is pedophilian, since once, in fact, even the son of Cronus, that is Zeus, king of immortals, fell in love with Ganymede, seized him and carried him off to Olympus and made him divine, keeping the lovely bloom of boyhood, Paideia. So don't be astonished, Simonides, uh, Simonides, that I too have been revealed as captivated by love for a handsome boy. And Plutarch says, when the boys reached this age, they were favored with society, with the society of lovers from among, among the reputable young Men, it's all too awful, awful for words.
And if you want to see how this has played out in French culture, you can look up Frédéric Mitterrand, M-I-T-T-E-R-R-A-N-D, a nephew of the former president, François Mitterrand. You can look up Frédéric Mitterrand and what he wrote about his experience buying boys in Thailand. It's, again, just absolutely horrifying and appalling. You can look at this, and uh, it was widely praised as, as a whole. So the sexual exploitation of children is common throughout history and is part of the mentality that maintained the hideous institution of slavery, of course. And I don't mean to jump around too much, but if we sort of look to 19th century America, in New York City, between 1790 and 1876, so remember, America's better than France in general in terms of the treatment of children. There have been reports that 330,000 children were victims of church sex abuse in France. But in New York City, between 1790 and 1876, between a third and half of rape victims were under the age of 19. During the 1820s, the figure was 76%. So 76% of rape victims were under the age of 19. The historian Lynn Sacco found more than 500 published newspaper reports of father-daughter incest between 1817 and 1899. In 1894, a textbook called A System of Legal Medicine reported that, and I quote, the rape of children is the most frequent form of sexual crime. Right, The rape of children is the most frequent form of sexual crime. And the physical harm was concerned, or the reputational ruin was of concern. Nobody even really imagined or thought about the psychological damage caused by sexual abuse, at least, and, and honestly, it's so new. It's all so new. It's all so new. Like, we're not even a century into people even thinking that there's psychological harm caused by sexual abuse. In the 1930s, people began to think about this as a whole. And in fact, the solution to rape was marriage in a lot of times, right? So, so from 1896 to 1926, 30% of statutory rape cases tried to solve it by marriage or financial payment and so on. And it's, gosh, it's all so new. Physical child abuse as something that's, that's common and, and bad was really only discovered in the 1950s, 1960s. Actually, the first people to discover it were radiologists who kept noticing fractures in children that couldn't be explained by common accidents. And they began to slowly, somewhat get the idea that maybe the children were being physically abused. So again, that's not long ago. 70 years, 80 years, it's so new. Now, I couldn't find much about child abuse statistics in 18th century France, of course, right? I mean, it wouldn't be recorded because it wouldn't be an issue, and certainly the poor wouldn't, it wouldn't be recorded as a whole. But knowing that America had a better treatment of children, and there's better data about America, knowing that America had better treatment of children than France, let's look at at this. So the common law heritage of American law almost totally legitimized violence towards children. So if you were a child's legal guardian in America, you had the right to inflict any punishment that you deemed necessary. And especially in the 17th century, where religion was very, very powerful in America, severe punishments were considered absolutely essential to saving the child from devilry. And, you know, you had to rear a child with a very, very heavy hand. And even in the late 18th and early 19th century in America, which 
was the rise of nationalism and a diminution of the power of religious domination. And there were lots of laws and statutes aimed at saying, well, this behavior is unacceptable, that behavior is unacceptable. There were no attempts that have been found, again, late 18th, early 19th centuries, no attempts that have been found to prevent the abuse of children by their caretakers. A major court in North Carolina declared that the parent's judgment of need for a child's punishment was always presumed to be correct. Whatever you do to punish your child is correct. Theoretically, criminal liability would only exist in cases resulting in permanent injury. It didn't really happen much, but theoretically that case could be made. Now, beginning in the early 19th century, there were sort of three reforms, or reform movements directed at maybe beginning to protect neglected, beaten, or delinquent children. So in the 19th century, there was a House of Refuge movement. And in the turn of the century, there were crusades by the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And in the early 20th century, there was the rise of juvenile courts in America. Now, the general movements were not to reduce the amount of abuse or punish or correct abuse of parents, but the child became the object of rescue and humanitarian reform. Now, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 who knows what the actual motivations were? It's lost to time. But in general, what was talked about was not, oh, you know, it's really, really terrible what's happening to these children and how monstrous the parents are for, you know, half beating their children to death. They said, no, 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 we're not here to save children from cruel or abusive parents, but we want to save society from future criminality. And if the children are tortured and beaten and broken, then we're going to get criminals out of it. So, right. So what they did was they said, look, criminals or evil, evil people come from poverty and, and city life and so on. And so they would scoop up these urban youths and they would take them away from these corrupting environments of poverty in the city and they put them into institutional settings. I mean, the children were taken away from dysfunctional families. The parents were never punished or even criticized. It's the children who were taken out. So really in America, and you know, this is very loosey-goosey and it's certainly not consistent across the landmass, but organized child protection really only began in 1875. Before that, if you were abused, if you were neglected, exploited, you were without protection. Again, you would maybe be helped if a permanent injury was done to you by a parent. Early in American history, local officials had the power to take children and put them into apprenticeships, where, of course, often they would be mistreated. And, and they could do this if the family was poor. They could just take the child and hand him over to someone to be free or, I guess, room and board kind of labor. Now, the first institution to care for large numbers of poor and mistreated children was the poorhouse or the houses. But... Beginning in 1729, again, this is long before the French Revolution, they tried to create a more humane alternative to the poorhouse, which was called the orphanage. During the 19th century, orphanages in America spread across the nation. There were many of them. And then beginning in the middle of the 19th century, reformers said, look, if the kids are poor, they shouldn't live in orphanages. They should live in foster homes. And again, like we look at this with a bit of eye rolling, but originally they were just put in like Oliver Twist, like beasts of burden. They were put into workhouses and then they were put into orphanages where there was some education and some 
better treatment. And then they said, no, 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 not workhouses, not orphanages. We should try to get them into foster care because that will be more like parent-child relationship and hopefully they'll, they'll do better. I mean, pe- people talk about the discovery of the new world, seeing the dark side of the moon, exploring the underside of the ocean. But really, the most amazing discovery, the most powerful discovery in all of human history was the discovery of childhood. So it started in the late 17th century and went to the sort of first third of the 19th century. Some people refer to it as the long 18th century, say 1688 to 1832. And this really was the discovery of childhood. People began to say children are different. They're not just small adults. They're not just vessels of original sin, but they are delicate to some degree, impressionable, unformed beings who should be protected and educated and get attention and care from their parents. So you're not born evil, you're not born sinful, bad, disobedient, you're born tabula rasa. This was Locke's argument, blank slate. Now, what that means is that if somebody delivers you an ugly statue, you can say, that's an ugly statue. I don't want it. It's bad. But if you make the statue, you can't blame the statue, right? And so if children are born blank slate, then dysfunction, problems, criminality, messed up psychologies, if the children are born blank slate, not infested or infected with original sin, and willfulness and susceptible to demonology and and so on. If children are born blank slate, then the vanity of the parents is going to lead the parents to want to treat the children better because the children are now a reflection, not of original sin and demonism and so on, but of the parents' choices. That's an unbelievable thing that happened. Right, so the parents' vanity before was, well, I have to beat the evil out of my children and bring them to whatever, some sort of virtue. And if a child behaved badly, it's because the demon in the child was too strong, even for the parents. And so the parents were looked at as sympathy. Oh my gosh, you had a bad child, right? How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have an ungrateful child. That's from King Lear. So originally it was like, well, we tried to beat the devil out of him and it didn't work. And you'd get sympathy for a quote, bad kid. But if children are blank slate, then you are responsible for how your children turn out. So you have to treat them better. Otherwise, you will be condemned as having broken your children. Because they're not born broken, you try to fix them. They're born blank slate, and you broke them. And it's wild. There's a historian called J.H. Plum, who said, looking at 18th century England, right, 18th century England, particularly the second half, right? So we're talking time of the French Revolution. He said, it's a new world of children. Childhood has been discovered. And once you got the blank slate argument and you got rid of the idea of original sin, and it wasn't just original sin, but this other children, like all faults with children are the children's faults and you, the only solution is violence. You wouldn't believe it. It literally was like an explosion of, of games, of toys, of books, schools, and services directed to children. You start to get uh, fun fairs. You start to get uh, reading clubs. You start to have the idea of playtime, not just you're a kid who needs to be beaten, wrapped up, hung on a hook, put to work, and assaulted for any funny looks, right? Any, any glance backs. And this is the 1700s, particularly 1750 to 1799 in England. And they discovered childhood. 
Germans described the 18th century in Germany as a pedagogical age. So this is the beginning of, well, gosh, how do we educate our children? They're born blank slate. They reflect upon us. How do we educate them? And you begin to get a proliferation of educational treatises. It's really, really something. They really tried to figure out, because they figured out so much about the rest of the world and, and physics and chemistry, science and so on. They said, okay, how do we educate children? We need to make it systematic. We need to make it scientific. Maria Edgeworth, a very British name, of course, wrote a book called Practical Education, which was published in 1798. And she said, it's wonderful, the elevation of children's education to, quote, its proper station in experimental philosophy. So children's play had been condemned by some of the more Puritan writers of the 17th century, like in the 1600s. They said, children's play, oh, it's not just a waste of time. It's, it leads you to evil, right? Idle hands are the devil's work, right? And so you've got to stay busy, and that means work. So Horace had a motto about the object of poetry, delectando monemus, instruction with delight. Poetry is to instruct you with delight. And that appeared at the opening of a book called A Little Pretty Pocketbook that was published in 1744. This was the first book by the first commercially successful publisher of books for children. The name was John Newbery of the publishing industry. Instruction with delight. So for the first time in human history, there was a children's publisher and a little pretty pocket book. In the 18th century, you actually saw the opening of the very first toy stores in London. And of course, everything was supposed to be instruction with delight. So what did you have? You had child-sized gardening tools, child-sized microscopes, and all kinds of fun stuff. So a woman named Lady Eleanor Fenn wrote a book called Rational Sports in Dialogues Among Children. And the children play games where they name the major exports of the various colonies and they describe all the activities associated with various different professions and so on. So children's books portrayed the child heroes engaged in improving and, and educational games. For me, by the by, it was uh, Mallory Towers in particular, afterwards the famous Five, written by the British writer Enid Blyton that uh, instructed me on a lot of morals. And of course, I read those to my daughter when she was younger. We had a great deal of fun with those with those stories. And one of our big topics was, what's next in Mallory Towers? What's next? And like, we would sort of try and guess where the story was going to go. So you got toy stores, fun fairs, educational ideas, instruction with delight, and books for young readers. It was incredible, the discovery of childhood. Now, of course, a lot of educational writers took their cues from John Locke's unbelievably famous and seminal book called Some Thoughts Concerning Education, which came out in 1693. 1693. A century before the reign of terror. Now, again, we've mentioned this before. I just wanted to remind you, Locke argued, said, don't punish children for tiny transgressions. I mean, he couldn't go the whole way. Couldn't get to the non-aggression principle, right? He said, well, if a child shows a, quote, manifest perverseness of the will, then you can use physical punishment. But he said, look, children are going to learn better and they'll internalize that learning if you have a system of reward and if you shame them. And that's better. Now, again, shaming is better than beating in, in many ways. So Locke's system provided the child with a kind of 
the kind of autonomy and, and self-discipline that was necessary for him to join the middle class, right? Join the middle class. It's wild. Now, of course, across the channel, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was really at war in many ways with Locke in the second half of the 18th century. In 1762, he wrote a book called Emile and the natural education of this, it was a novel, right? The natural education of this main character was, was really considered outlandish and, and actually irreligious by some critics. And it was really not a very practical way to educate kids, right? Because the boy and his tutor had to be isolated for years in the country. I mean, way out of society, and that way the boy can learn from nature and, and for himself and so on. And so they were both interested in how do we produce good citizens. And of course, because of the growth of the free market and the growth of the bourgeois, the middle class, you needed a new kind of childhood because the old kinds of childhood did not produce people who would be successful in the more voluntary relationships of the middle class. The middle class have voluntary relationships. The, Of course, the elite don't have voluntary relationships and aristocracy and so on. And the very poor are kind of stuck, bought and sold with the land, stuck in their professions, couldn't get out of them. And so it was the new middle class that had voluntary relationships. And if you want to succeed with your children and hand your children your business or your, your profession or what it is that you do, then you have to raise your children more peacefully, more reasonably, instruction with delight. So the growth of the economy in the voluntary sector produced the discovery of childhood and produced a new form of pedagogy, a new form, first ever, first new form. Rather than raping the boys, they were instructing them and trying to, trying to teach them. So the idea that you have a new kind of society, you've got science, you've got, a new, you've got the rise of the novel, starting with Daniel Defoe, was it Mal Flanders and so on, you've got the rise of the novel for the first time. Novel is a uniquely bourgeois and middle-class construct, which is a naturalistic style of storytelling that sounds like you're telling a story rather than reciting, right? So one of the reasons you had to have iambic pentameter and rhyming, it's a lot easier, if you've ever done it, it's a lot easier to remember song lyrics than it is to remember just a piece of text. And when things rhyme, it's easier to remember. So if you have like Beowulf and the Odyssey and so on, this oral tradition requires rhyming and requires rhythmic language because it's easy to remember with the printing press the rise of middle class you get naturalistic storytelling with naturalistic storytelling you get the development of empathy so we know this from studies in the present that those who read novels have greater empathy it, it trains you on empathy because you're literally going into the naturalistic normal mind of another you're not watching as some god or some otherworldly hero strides through the battle, fighting off enemies and showering blood everywhere. You're literally going into your neighbor's mind and concerns and thoughts and worries. And is this guy good enough for me? Is my marriage happy? How are my children going to do? You recognize the empathy and the similarity of yourself with others. It's like, it's an incredible thing that happened in England and America and the colonies of, of England to a large degree as well. It didn't really happen. Didn't really happen in France. So again, into why of that. So for Locke, it's like you teach the kids a little bit of guidance, a little bit of instruction, but they need to be delighted in their learning so that they will become constant lifelong learners, which is the bourgeois. You constantly need to be a lifelong learner. I mean, think of small business owners now. How much time do they have to spend familiarizing themselves with new regulations, new rules, new techniques, new tactics? I mean, 
And of course, I certainly remember this when I was youth technical officer and a programmer. You constantly had to learn new technology. There's new ways of doing things. Think of how much small business owners in particular needed to harness the internet uh, early on and so on. You've just got to be a constant learner. So, But it was different in Rousseau, right? For, for Rousseau in Emile, Emile, well, constant, rigid supervision, invasive education from his tutor. And of course, he only wrote that males could be educated in this kind of way. And so he said, well, children are by nature good, and well, man is born free, yet if he were, he is in chains, sort of the famous statement. So he said, well, we're born good, and the only reason there's bad is we're corrupted by exposure to society. Now that, being born good and society corrupts you, is not Locke's thinking. Locke's thinking is a blank slate. It's a blank slate. So Emile, the novel, okay, there was some odd stuff that went on in terms of people reading it. So there was a fellow named Thomas Day, and what he did was he said, well, my son has to get used to loud noises to, to live in a city, so he would discharge a pistol beside his son's head without warning. And there was some odd stuff that came out of it. I mean, obviously, there was some strange stuff that came out of Locke too, but less, less of that kind of stuff. So there was a focus on empiricism as well, because remember, bourgeois, materialists, middle class, empirical, absolutely empirical. And so they said, look, the, the, the people who taught how to teach, the pedagogues and the people who wrote for children said, look, children learn way better by direct experience than by memorization or listening to sermons. And there was a woman, Anna Babald, she remarked, quote, if you would know precisely the effect set discourse have upon your child, be pleased to reflect upon that which a discourse of from the pulpit has upon you, right? So if you want to know how your lectures to your kid affect your kid, think of how a boring lecture from a clergyman and the effect that that has on you. So when you've gone from the poor to the middle class, you're a social climber, right? And, you know, middle class is often attacked for this kind of social climbing. Really, really important, though. So you, the middle class, they didn't fall from the aristocracy in general. They emerged from the poor. And so... If their children are well-educated, they can continue to rise. And of course, for some of them, the goal was the aristocracy, but even just to become more wealthy. And so the middle class wanted to educate the children in, in reason, in empiricism, in the delight of learning, in the delight of gaining knowledge so that it would continue over the courses of their life. In fact, in some elements of the middle classes were advocating really radical stuff at the time, even anti-monarchical social reforms but most of the social reforms proposed by the middle class were concerned with children and education. So who wrote educational treatises or books for children, or both? Joseph Priestley, Mary Wollstonecraft, famous author of Vindication of the Rights of Women and Frankenstein, William Godwin, Catherine Macaulay, and many, many others. So Mary Wollstonecraft wrote a book called Original Stories from Real Life in 1791. 1791. And the book charts the progress of two young girls who are under the care of a positive and benevolent teacher or governess. And it's their path from childish irrationality to adult reason. Boom, boom, boom. Now, of course, the upper classes and the lower classes, yes, 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 they cared about their children for sure, but the upper classes didn't really care about social advancement because they're already at the top. And, of course, for the poor, the money, the time, the literacy to invest in their kids' future was less available. And, of course, 
those brilliant kids who happen to be born among the poor would teach themselves or find some way to get ahead and to learn and so on, right? But there were a whole new set of occupations in the 18th century. Writing for children, entertaining children, teaching children, recognizing that children have different medical needs from adults. This all became professional activities in the 18th century for the first time. And of course, who was available to do this? Well, the rich weren't doing it. The poor weren't able to do it. The middle class. The middle class. And so schooling for children was everywhere and in a new format, trying to delight the children. Instruction through delight. Got to engage the children. Got to be the wiggles. Got to be fun, right? And even relatively like the lower, lower middle class, they could all afford children. I talked about the Lancashire School of Teaching. So in the Lancashire School of Teaching, what happened was students would master something and then they would teach those who came after them. And it was incredibly cheap to to get educated. And of course, not only do you gain the benefit of learning something, you gain the benefit of teaching it to someone else, which is how you know if you really know it or not, right? So the term pediatrics, like the modern term for the health of children, dealing with the health of children, that was only mid-19th century was the term coined. But it was back then in the 18th century, it was called the medical management of children. And over the course of the 18th century, the medical management of children became an increasing concern. But why? Well, because if you invest a lot in your child, your education and, and breastfeeding and so on, you're not just shipping your child off to some wet nurse in the country, maybe going to pick them up if they make it by the time they're five. You're actually eye contact and you want to protect the health of your children because of your emotional and monetary and educational investment in them. So it was amazing. So health practitioners from every level of the medical profession produced manuals and treatises on the diseases to which children, and of course sometimes mothers, were subjected to. There were self-help books designed for parents and all the way to like complicated medical texts with, with diagrams and, and, and footnotes and endnotes and indexes and all that kind of stuff. It was wild. So these medical texts devoted specifically to children in the 18th century is part of the discovery of childhood. Children are different from adults. Children are a blank slate. Now, Locke's influence on, believe it or not, on, on pediatrics was really quite powerful. So Locke re recommended that children be dressed in cool, loose-fitting clothes, that their diet should be relatively simple, not, not too rich, you know, meat and potatoes, vegetables, and most of the medical texts repeated that, right? Lo cool, loose-fitting clothes, which means don't bind them up, don't swaddle them, don't, don't wrap them in all of this tight stuff, don't make them uncomfortable. And keep their diet simple because they're just learning how to eat. So before it was like, well, if you're having rich food, your kids will just have some rich food. But the idea that the immature digestive system benefits from simpler diets was, again, new, shocking, shocking. But I want to just touch back again on this tabula rasa stuff, this sort of blank slate. slate. So your mind is a blank slate when you're born. And again, I know that that's not accurate because you have sort of inbuilt stuff, uh, personality and, and temperament and so on, but of some of it anyway. But in the 18th century, the idea that the child's mind is a blank slate and it can take any impression from any of the information it receives from the senses, that was had a huge impact on the medical management on, on, of children, on pediatrics. So children are born with no innate idea, so they've got incredible potential, but there's great risk. It's a thin, wobbly, dangerous line. Right, so the mental and the physical, because it's a very materialistic age, right? The mental and the physical were inseparable. So 
if you get bad data, bad input, bad ideas, bad exposure, bad experiences, that has permanent negative effects on your brain. The children in this new thinking are incredibly susceptible to bad influences, bad stimuli, bad smells, bad behavior, violence, and so on. There was a fellow named Jane, James Long who was a big fan of Locke. He remarked, quote, young and tender minds can take any sort of impressions, but once a certain impression is fixed in the child's mind, first impressions, right, it's very hard to dislodge it. There was a fellow named David Hartley, a famous philosopher and an early theorist of neurology. He said, this is what's different about childhood. He wrote a book called Observations on Man, His Frame, His Duty, and His Expectations. This is 1749. And he said, look, there's a big bag here called insane people, idiots, drunkards, criminals, and children, all, right, all in the same. They're all, it's really bad judgment, and they're all deficient in, quote, the perfection of reasoning, natural to adult. Reasoning, reasoning, reasoning was so powerful. Reasoning was unwrapping and unpacking all the secrets of the universe, and reason was beginning the abolitionistic movement to end slavery and so on. Reason was just incredibly powerful. The age of reason. It was the age of reason, right? That was good while it lasted, right? Wasn't it? It was great. We loved it. Now, he said, okay, yes, we're going to put in a big bag insane people, idiots, drunkards, criminals, and children, but, but, of course, the difference is that children can be brought to a state of reasoning perfection. So you want to cultivate regular habits, more systematic approaches to learning, physical regimens, beginning of of exercise that had its real fruition in the muscular Christianity movement of the 19th century. And it's not just for you, it's for the whole, all, all of society. It's for all of society. Amazing. I just wanted to mention, like, again, scouring, trying to find the data, I find sort of hints here and there. So this was from history.com. Sexual exploitation was the norm for 19th century ballerinas in Paris, right? So the famous Paris Opera Ballet, wealthy men would go in and buy the girls and rape the girls, right? So that's bad. I mean, obviously, absolutely, absolutely terrible. So I dip into Ireland here because it's not just Catholicism, right? I'm going to get to the whole rant on causality and no dominoes, because I've really been working that idea back and forward like somebody's ribs on the blur of Muhammad Ali's fists. So what happened was, in the 18th century, women, wealthy women, in general this would be the upper middle class women, the bourgeois women, concern for education became a fashionable topic of conversation. So a woman named Emily Fitzgerald, because I want to give my props to the upper classes as well, she was the Duchess of Leinster, She was very excited by reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and she gave massive thought, time, and attention to the education of her large family of, hold your horses, hold your britches, 16 children. She had 16 children. She actually tried to entice Rousseau to come to Ireland to tutor her children, but she had to settle for a Scotsman, William Oglivy, whom she actually subsequently married. The Fitzgerald summer house in Blackrock on the outskirts of Dublin City was transformed into a private school where O'Gillivy taught the children. It was really, really something. So this was, in keeping with the arguments from Rousseau and others, the Fitzgerald children, right, all 16 of them, spent a great deal of time outdoors in the backyard working in the garden. They swam and they exercised in general and they took walks along the seashore. Although their mother was not often around. She spent time in the main family home of Castletown in Kildare or in Leinster House in Dublin, city centre. She did receive 
letters. She did receive regular updates on the progress of her children sent by the tutor Ogilvy through the letters that the children uh, sent to her. In fact, she kept her letters. You can find them now in the Fitzgerald family papers in the National Library of Ireland. Now, this was a Protestant Anglo-Irish family, and Protestantism is a rebellion and the application of moral reasoning to matters of faith, right, to questions of faith. And so the fact that they might be a little bit more keen for the moral teaching of children is probably not accidental to the very fact of them being uh, Protestants. But it wasn't just the Protestants. In the last quarter of the 18th century, right, so 1775 to the end of the century, middle-class Catholic children, lots of schools, lots of educational facilities were established in Ireland for them. So this woman named Nano Nagel, she was the daughter of a Cork merchant family. She returned from her continental education, absolutely determined to open a school for Catholic girls in Ireland. Ireland. So what did she do? Again, incredible stuff. You don't hear this from feminists, just how powerful women could be in the past, right? So she arranged for French nuns from the Ursuline order to open a school in Cork, Ireland. And they did focus quite a bit, kind of aristocratic and uppity. They focused on middle upper class girls, and she got a little disillusioned by that. But the school marked the beginning of a secondary type education for girls in Ireland. Now, okay, it was a little girly, fair. The, the, the school focused on teaching, quote, accomplishments and These were things designed to make the young women attractive wives who could socialize and have great conversations at a dinner table in a knowledgeable fashion. Now, why? Well, because the middle class is fundamentally men judged by wives. Men judged by wives. The poor, you know, they just marry whoever's around a lot of times, so you can't really judge, and nobody really judges, and everyone's often kind of trashy, you know, low rent and all that kind of stuff, right? The wealthy, they have arranged marriages and so on, but the middle class, who you choose as a mate is reflective of your values, and because the middle class need to form business alliances based upon incomplete information, right? No credit history, no scores, no internet, no, no you know, obviously social media. And, and so you had to evaluate someone very quickly, which is why the middle class businesses often revolve around socializing, right? You can see this now, even now, where, you know, people go to golf together and they'll uh, have, have dinners over and they'll socialize together and they'll go places together, maybe even go on vacations together because you need to judge someone's values. And the best way to judge someone's values is to look at his wife. Can he attract a quality wife? Can he keep a quality wife? Is his wife intelligent and poised and a good conversationalist or is she neurotic and fat and, and depressed and, you know, whatever, negative in some way, right? So the, the credit score for the middle class and the bourgeoisie in this time and even now is your partner, your, your wife, and to some degree your kids. Also, remember, in order to succeed in the middle class, you have to be accepted by in the, in the world of business. And what that means is People have to judge your character, your quality, and contracts, you know. I mean, they worked and they were somewhat enforceable, but if you remember the uh, opening of Bleak House, where, I mean, even in a fairly decent legal setting, the uh, legal cases have gone on for years and years and years and decades and decades. It's just like a huge mess, right? It's really tough to enforce contracts. And even if you can enforce them, it's very expensive and time-consuming to do so. And if you get a reputation for running to court to enforce your contracts or to sue people, then, you know, it's harder to do business with you. So you need the shorthand. 
And there's two shorthands. Sorry, I said this one. There's two shorthands. Number one, your wife. Number two, your kids. Are your kids nice, polite, respectful, reasonable, intelligent, well-read, well-versed, right? Because remember, blank slate, they're a reflection of your virtues. Your wife is a reflection of your virtues. And so, and your kids are definitely a reflection of your virtues. And so having a good family became important. Having polite children became important. Having beaten down, broken up children was not a good calling card. So your, your family became your credit score, your reputation, your establishment of business. And I remember going through this process when I was in sort of low rent occupations, you know, when I was working retail and, and when I worked a cleaner and in a variety of restaurants as a waiter and so on. I mean, nobody ever really socialized. I didn't care what anyone's family was like. I didn't care at all. Nobody cared for me about any of this stuff with me. But when I got into the business world, oof, man, things change, man. When you get into the business world, Suddenly it's all about, yeah, we're going to go for dinner. Yeah, let's go play some golf. Let's go do this because people are trying to get to know you because it matters what your values are. So again, this is another reason why children and the improvement of children became super, super important. Now, again, data is really hard to find for the 18th century. I did find the beginning of the 20th century, some information about France and a lot of French children did not have a full family life. So around 1900, for every 15 families in France that had both father and mother alive, there were six incomplete. So four had a father dead and two a mother dead. Now that's interesting, right? Four of them having a father dead and two a mother dead. Whether that's because of war, because you might expect it to be different, right? It probably was different in the Wild West, so to speak, because the mothers would die in childbirth from time to time, of course, right? So... I'm going to read this with sources below. I'm going to read this quote. It is generally believed that the basic transformation of the family has been the rise of children to the position of central importance in the home after centuries of neglect and their being accorded the right to a life of a special kind, different from that of adults and with different expectations placed upon them. This, again, after centuries in which they were treated simply as adults of miniature size, but to be dressed, and to work as adults. Here's the part I really want to focus on. Quote, The scientific study of children was slow to develop in France, and foreign ideas penetrated with difficulty. While school, family, and peer groups exerted contradictory pressures on children, they also maintained a conflict between the world of the child and the adult world. Now, scientific study of children slow to develop in France. Okay, why? Why? Well, you can't give too many reasons because then you take away free will. But it certainly has something to do with the power of the Catholic Church. It has to do with the lack of a middle class. You remember the famous, the middle class was gathered of merchants. The traders were all gathered together by the king who said, what can I do for you? And they famously said, laissez-nous-faire, leave us alone, leave us be. Laissez-faire capitalism comes from that. Leave us alone. And the king wouldn't, right? The king wouldn't. So... Why am I talking about all of this? Why am I talking about all of this? Well, it's going to blow your mind a little. It's going to blow your mind a little, but we'll, we'll dig in. We'll get to it. So let's talk about Maximilien Robespierre, the most famous head of the Reign of Terror. So he was born in Arras in 1758, born and baptized on the 6th of May, the son of François de Robespierre, who was a lawyer, and Jacqueline Carreau, daughter of a brewer. I mean, there's a little bit of a class difference, but, you know, whatever, right? 
Now, his mother was five months pregnant at the time of her marriage, and Francois's parents had refused to attend the ceremony. So that's a big issue, of course. Uh, he obviously was a bastard. They had sex before marriage and so on. Now, 30% of American marriages in the 19th century were shotgun weddings, and it was pretty much considered, at least in America, it's fine, have sex before marriage, it's not the end of the world as long as you get married. That's sort of what, what matters. But it was a big deal in the Catholic environment, right? So he was, I mean, he was born in wedlock, but it was a shotgun wedding. And this, of course, raises questions about how well Robespierre's parents were bonded, right? And as it turns out, not really, really bonded at all. So everyone knew about this. I mean, it was a fairly significant scandal, right? Everyone knew that, that, that it was shotgun wedding, so to speak, right? Now, after Maximilian, his mother Jacqueline gave birth in quick succession to Charlotte, Henriette, and Augustine. But in the year after Augustine's birth in 1764, a fifth child died during childbirth on the 7th of July, and then his mother, Maximilian's mother Jacqueline, who was 29 at the time, died of complications nine days later. And can you imagine the amount of screaming, the amount of suffering, the amount of blood for a woman to bleed out and die over nine days. And his father, Robespierre's father, didn't even go to his wife's funeral. She died over nine days giving birth to his fifth child. He didn't even go to his wife's funeral. And then he just despawned, man. He went to the back rooms. He just ghosted. It doesn't seem that he saw them again before his death in 1777. So the mother's dead and the father just ghosted. He just left. And so the kids, of course, were just scattered. The paternal aunts looked after the girls and Maximilian and Augustine, who was six, he was six, and the one-year-old went to live with their elderly grandparents in the carers along with their maternal aunts. So his family, his father, had been a long line of, of lawyers and officials and bureaucrats and so on, but he was cast down. Now that's interesting, and I don't mean to make this about me, I honestly don't, but I just wanted to mention that along an illustrious family history and then cast down to the very depths of society was my experience as well. It can make you a little rebellious, a little skeptical, a little bring yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thing, right? So he ended up, Maximilian ended up among laborers who were unloading sacks of grain for the brewery and workers shouting and all of that kind of stuff. And that's really important. That kind of fall from grace as a whole is really, really something because he's now the eldest of four orphans. And his sister later said it made him a prematurely serious, anxious, and hardworking child and afraid of bonding, right? Because at a time when he basically just watched and listened to. And you can think of him, of course, I mean, it's, it's brutal and awful, but it's worth the imagination exercise. Just think of this poor boy at the age of six coming in and putting a cold cloth on the forehead of his mother and listening to her screams and watching the widening pools of blood on her bed sheets, And she is slowly dying and the father just vanishes. Of course, when a child suffers that much, needs unbelievable levels of care, time, attention, and love, and his father just selfishly vanished. Just vanished. And of course, what did he see? He saw that his parents' vows meant nothing. His parents' vows meant nothing. 
religious injunctions, no sex before marriage, together in sickness and in health, devotion to children. His father was a lawyer and therefore was very good at making arguments and working the law and making high noble sounds out of his mouth hole, and none of it meant anything. And of course, Robespierre, what happened was he vociferously and repeatedly championed the rights of the individual and tolerance, democracy, the common good. But then, of course, was a prominent member of a government in 1794. Right, 1789, he's all about peace, tolerance, love, puppies, apple pie, and good things all around. By 1794, the government is wildly abusing civil liberties, incarcerating thousands and thousands of enemies and so on, and thousands of executions, uh, political executions and, and political murder and so on, right? So what does it mean to have high-sounding words and vows if it doesn't translate into any productive or moral outcomes, right? I mean, he was abandoned by his father, and he, he abandoned his own cause, his own rhetoric, and he abandoned his friends Danton and de Moulin, because, of course, they faced the guillotine in April of 1794, and he accused them of treachery and corruption, though, of course, they had been his great friends. We'll get to that in a second. And a lot of people who suffer a lot of trauma escape into a kind of fantasy world. This could be video games, of course, in the modern time. It could have been Dungeons and Dragons. It could have been science fiction. It could have been fantasy fiction, Lord of the Rings. You, you have this thirst and desire to escape. I remember standing on my balcony when I was sort of 12 or 13 and looking down at the pool between the apartment buildings. And then to my left were just trees and trees. And I just imagined that we were on the frontier, on the edge of civilization. And I just wanted to go and explore the woods and live in the woods and, and just escape the city and the grit and the grime and the dust and the violence, just go and explore. And that was my sort of fantasy world. And I created elaborate fantasy worlds in Dungeons and Dragons as a dungeon master. And of course, I'm fairly good at creating imaginary worlds as a novelist and so on. So yeah, to escape into imagination. Now for Robespierre, and this is a lot to do with his education as a whole, he was obsessed by the classical world, particularly ancient Rome. He was obsessed by ancient Rome, and which will sort of why I touched on this earlier, and we'll get this. And he ended up, of course, as an adult with no ability to have intimate relationships, to have any kind of pair bond. And he had phobias about cleanliness and dirt and filth and and physical intimacy. And of course, as a result, I mean, the likelihood is that he died in his 30s as a virgin. Some people say he had no capacity for sexual intimacy. Some people he said, oh, well, he had one mistress. He was weak and frail and had a bad voice, and, and he was accused of being physically repellent, repellent to women. Yet, he had groupies like you wouldn't believe. It's just wild. We'll sort of get to that as a whole in, in a second. But... He basically sent, let's talk about Danton. So Robespierre sent Danton to the guillotine in April 1794, accusing him of treachery and, and corruption, of course, in the time of war. That's sort of very, very serious business. However, let's go back a little bit, not even a year, February, sorry, a little over a year, February 1793, Robespierre had written a beautiful letter to his friend after his wife died, Danton's wife died, right? And he said, if in the only misfortunes that can crush such a soul as yours, the certainty of having a loving and devoted friend may offer you some consolation. I offer it to you. I love you more than ever and until death. At this moment, I am you. Do not close your heart against the words of friendship, which feels all your pain. 
And I remember watching the movie Goodfellas and the Robert De Niro character is chatting away with the, with the Joe Pesci character knowing that he's about to kill him. And I just remember being quite stunned at that coldness and that lack of bond. They've been best friends and buddies for decades and then he just hands him over to be killed and doesn't even look back. That's terrifying to me. Like the idea that you can betray people in that way, that you can be the best and possible friends, right? <sighs> so this is February 1793. I love you forever. I am you I, until death. I, I the best conceivable, most attached and loving friend that you can ever have, right? April 1794, just over a year later, he says, well, not just you're financially corrupt, morally evil, and so on, but he, he accused him of quipping over dinner that virtue was, quote, what he practiced every night with his wife, which is kind of an odd insult. So, I mean, he hated sex. And I know this sounds all kinds of weird and Freudian. There's a reason why I'm, you know, trust me, hopefully, hopefully I've earned some trust at this point. Trust me, we'll, we'll get there, but this hatred of sex is really, really important, right? He's, one of the worst insults he could say to his friend is that he has sex with his wife every night. Or I guess had at that point, right? Now, on 29th December 1790, going back a couple of years, Robespierre was witness to the marriage of Camille and Lucille de Moulin. And he sang of the beautiful eyes and beautiful virtues of the charming Lucille. But in April 1794, when Lucille appealed to Robespierre, and she said, like, remember how, how, how happy and joyous you were holding your godson Horace on his knee? Please save my husband, save me. Nope, didn't matter. He sent them both to the guillotine anyway. Isn't that wild? He cried tears of joy at their wedding, bounced his grandson, no, bounced his godson Horace on his knee, and she begged him for any kind of sympathy, any kind of connection, any kind of salvation. Nothing. Go get your head chopped off. Now, that probably is his father, right? I mean, his father abandoning four children in their hour of greatest need and just wandering off. No money, no nothing. No, didn't, she didn't even know where they went. Nobody knew where he went. And he was kind of weird and half autistic with women. If he was attracted to a woman, he would write her really awkward, weird poems. And he would also include his legal writings. Here's a case I argued, and here's my legal writings, which is a very bizarre form of mating display and so on. So I'll put some sources. You can look into that in more detail. I don't want to overtax your attention with all of that sort of stuff. But so he, yeah, he did try and get women, but he never. He never got married. And he loved the family, in theory, right? In theory, and it's, it's a bizarre thing to see. So he said about the family, quote, Marriage is a fertile source of virtues. It ties the heart to thousands of worthy objects. It accustoms it to the gentle passions, to honest sentiments. It is a rule derived from nature herself. When one becomes a father, one generally becomes a more honest man. Right? So he was very, very keen in his speeches, right? But you remember... People whose parents have no integrity are generally raised to be hypocrites, to, to speak fine words while harboring murderous impulses, right? I mean, at the time, in relative poverty, for the father to abandon his children would be to doom them to death. There's something semi-murderous about abandoning your children when their mother dies over the case of nine days. It's really wild. And he was small, he was frail, and 
yet he just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it is with women and celebrity. It's just, it's wild. You can say, oh, well, it's power, prestige, or whatever it is. But women and celebrity is, is just wild. And his secretary in 1790, his sec- secretary named Pierre Verriers, recalled the impressive amount of mail that Robespierre received every day, and especially, of course, from women. When the National Assembly was dissolved, this is September 1791, there were masses of Parisians outside applauding Robespierre, shouting, long live Robespierre, long live the incorruptible, right? And as a sort of marketing 101, he was, li- he was referred to as the incorruptible. And they were stopped by women who, who fawned all over him. One gave him her child, and at least, she said, you will allow this child to kiss you. And one of the women made a speech to Robespierre, and she said, in the midst of corruption, you have remained the unshakable support of truth, always steadfast, always incorruptible. The, this people, I say, speaks your name only with high regard. You are its guardian angel, its hope, its consolation. Oh, Robespierre, its love, its veneration will forever avenge the black and ugly plots of your cowardly detractors. I mean, that's just... And there were a number of people who noted this speech and so on, so this, like, hysterical devotion. I mean, of course, you see the same thing with women and Napoleon. You see the same thing with women and Hitler, and I'm sure it was the same thing with women and Genghis Khan as well. And the fact that Robespierre had this peculiar attraction to to women, like women were just peculiarly attracted to him, and the attraction was political as well as emotional, and this was a big point of contention. So, 29th October 1792, the new National Convention was witness to charges against Robespierre from his opponents among the Girondins, and they said, you're responsible for the massacres after the monarchy was overthrown in August. And they said, you trying to create a dictatorship along with Marat, the guy who was murdered in the bathtub, and he was in the bathtub because he had a terrible skin condition, had to bathe all day. So Louvain called for the assembly to pass a law banishing Robespierre. 5th November, Robespierre delivered a big speech in response, and the galleries were packed. He was like a rock star. A lot of people, a lot of women, had spent the night camped outside, and they fought over the entry tickets. The Patreon Francais reckoned that there were up to 800 women all jammed into the galleries, and only 200 men, and that they referred to him as being besieged by women, both there and at the Jacobin Club. It was wild. And so this guy, Girondin Condorcet, fell back to try and explain, to try and figure out why, why do they worship, why do women worship him so much? In the Chronique de Paris, he explained that Robespierre, and I quote, has all the characteristics, not of a religious leader, but of the leader of a sect. It's like a cult. He has built up for himself a reputation for austerity which borders on sainthood. He mounts his soapbox, he speaks of God and providence, he says he is the friend of the poor and the weak, and he attracts a following of women and the easily led. Faber d'esprit. Robespierre is a priest and will never be anything else. A witness, a Scottish doctor named John Moore, kind of agreed with this. He said Robespierre's speeches are, quote, barren in argument, sometimes fertile in the flowers of fancy. Robespierre's eloquence is said to be peculiarly admired by the female sex. Yes, well, we see this with the sort of modern leftist women, the, was it, awfuls, (laughs) affluent white female liberals, that 
they value rhetoric over substance, that they value flights of fancy over practical consequences, that they value words over deeds. And this is a bit of a, a bit of a feminized aspect of the revolution that I don't think is, is talked about, well, nearly, nearly enough, well, for obvious reasons, for obvious reasons. Now, remember how Robespierre was talking about how amazing and wonderful the family was, oh yeah, right? The family is the seat of everything, blah, 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 right? Now, in July 1793, ready to get your mind blown, it's amazing to me. July 1793, Robespierre outlined a draft education policy. He said, this is one of the, quote, monuments which the convention owes to history. A wild educational policy proposal. So basically he said that from the age of five or six, the government should take the children from their parents and put them into ancient Greek-style Spartan boarding school slash military camps. I mean, this is a common thing on the left, right? That the the children were owned by the state, right? So after praising, well, of course, well, words and deeds have no connection, just as his parents' vows and his father's absence, his father leaving, his father's abandonment meant nothing. So he said, the government will take the kids, five, six years old, will take the kids and put them in these Spartan, ascetic, hyper-exercise, boarding school slash military training camps. Now, where did he get this? Where did he get this, all these Spartan values? Well, as a schoolboy, everybody had to read Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus. So in these boarding schools, you've got civic study, physical exercise, manual work. They, they rule what you wear, what you eat. And this is for everyone, not just for soldiers, right? This is for everyone. So Lycurgus' academy called the Agorge, the French Republic, would take children from their parents from about the age of five or six, put them in these places. Now, Plutarch took children away from their parents and put them in these boarding schools, these half-military encampments, right? Plutarch also said that 12-year-old boys should have adult male lovers. Now, he would know this, of course. He would know this. Now, of course, there were some concerns. What was the concern? The concern was, well, kids need to work, and you're taking away the work that the poor kids need to do. And he said, it is not true that the child will be separated from its parents. It stays with them for the first five years. It stays near them during the seven years of education when it passes into the hands of the fatherland. If you adopt this plan, the birth of a child, this event so happy for nature, will no longer be a calamity for an indigent family. Yeah, we'll take your kids. You can't really afford them. We'll take your kids. Put them in a school based upon a guy who says that the ideal educational situation is for 12-year-old boys to be raped by endless legions of adult males. Does anyone really doubt what happened to Robespierre as a child? Look at all the characteristics. Complete incapacity to have any intimacy. Complete in incapacity to have sexual relations. Protestations of vapid, mad love followed by complete indifference and, in fact, enthusiasm for the slaughter of his former friends. Complete inability to bond. Come on, man. Come on. Is this all the effects of sexual abuse? And, of course, the fact that children should be taken into government control about the age of six, which was the age when his mother died and he ended up being scattered and abandoned and so on, and unprotected, right? Unprotected and a child of, in, a, in, a, in an environment or situation of fairly universal 
childhood sexual abuse. Right? No father to protect him, no, I right? just scattered, right? 